So I'd like to <coughs> talk about this evening as compassion. The spiritual journey truly has its foundations in the, the twin pillars of wisdom and compassion. They are likened to being the two wings of a bird. They complement each other, they balance each other, they complete each other, and they nourish each, nourish each other. And it is very difficult uh, to divorce these two aspects of the Dharma from each other. There's the Buddha Sutta says, one who clings to the void and neglects compassion will not reach the highest awakening. But one who practices only compassion does not gain release from suffering. There can be wisdom without compassion, but that creates a kind of split within ourselves. Wisdom without compassion really tends to be the mind which is disconnected from the heart. It is a wisdom which is often lacking in a vision of interconnectedness and because of that is also a wisdom that lacks the power of transformation inwardly and outwardly. Detachment which is not balanced by love doesn't really hold within it any possibilities of healing, of extending, of reaching out. Instead, it often becomes a kind of withdrawal or separation. To touch the heart of another person, to touch our own heart, the wisdom that develops in this practice clearly needs to be balanced by the development of love. Wisdom without compassion easily does become to a kind of spiritual invincibility which degenerates into passivity and this is of course a great danger in the spiritual life that you know we can be so wise through our experience and that often means that we hold within us a whole kind of treasure chest of wonderful solutions for all the problems in the world and wonderful answers to suffering and we know all about the relationship between suffering and its cause. But when that wisdom is not balanced by compassion, we may well indeed have this kind of wealth of well-intentioned is advice only to find that nobody is listening to us. With no compassion, there's also no empathy. As a Christian mystic once said, of what avail, of what use, is the open eye if the heart is blind? Wisdom actually requires compassion, to bring it to life, to give it power. 
compassion gives power to wisdom, the power to touch, the power to transform, the power to actually make visible the understanding that grows within us through our practice. But just as much, compassion also needs wisdom. It is insight, it is understanding that brings courage, that brings equanimity, that brings skillfulness to compassion. It is through wisdom that compassion finds the right actions, the right words, the right directions, the right applications. Because the whole direction of insight, the whole direction of wisdom is really to dissolve separation between inner and outer, between I and you, between us and them. And it is in the dissolving of the separation that true compassion can actually grow. Because the dissolving of those separations also means the dissolving of the judgments and the values which so often shadow separation. And those judgments, of course, only serve to dilute compassion because judgments and values make us hold ourselves apart from others, from the world around us, and to think in terms of, well, what is worthy of compassion and what is unworthy of compassion? Should I feel compassionate for this person? Or maybe I should feel compassion for myself. Or, you know, what is really deserving of compassion? True compassion is actually can never be rooted in value judgments about worthiness or unworthiness. It can't hold those kinds of judgments. Compassion is actually not really a response of mine. It's not like it's a possession that I have, that I hold, or that I've realized and I'm going to decide to extend it to someone else or decide to extend it to myself. In this way, compassion is always going through all these filters of the mind, which of course carries its judgment. Compassion doesn't decide that, you know, now I, I look like I'm in need of some sympathy or some, some matter. There's no choices in the growth and the deepening of compassion. And in that way, compassion is actually something, a quality of heart, a quality of being, is actually purified by wisdom. So that it, compassion is actually simply a, a response of the heart, a response of the mind, a response of our whole being that embraces suffering, that embraces pain, that embraces conflict wherever it is found, without any judgment, without any choices, and also without any thoughts or demands of results. Because again, compassion without wisdom that is filtered through an eye, through a center, too often thinks in terms of, you know, now I've extended compassion, something should happen. Something should change. You should feel better for it, or I should feel better for it. I don't think that true compassion actually has any thought of result.
In traveling this path, I think it is important not to think of compassion as some kind of incidental or desirable reward that is gained through practice, that is gained through time, that is gained through developing a certain number of insights and then we will be compassionate. I think it is also important not to think of compassion necessarily as a product of wisdom or as something that a destination that we will arrive at at some future point. Wisdom does not necessarily translate into compassion. This seems, you know, perhaps a strange thing, um, but it is possible to have many insights without the heart awakening whatsoever. Um, once I was teaching a retreat in, in America, and I was aware that there was this group of people who had come together, and they informed me that they, they worked in a nearby scientific lab, um, where they did a lot of uh, experiments on chemicals with animals. And um, I thought, interesting, you found yourself here. (laughs) And I said, well, yeah, it was suggested by our supervisor so that we could develop more uh, detachment in our work. It is important not to think as I think of compassion as a necessary translation, a necessary product of wisdom. It is not so. It requires a little more than that. We easily do think of both wisdom and compassion as in kind of capital letters. They're big things. I think often when we hear these words, you know, wisdom, you know, think of Buddha images, you know, compassion, you know, we think of grand gestures. We usually think of them as very big words, very big states, very big attainments in capital letters, heavily underlined. And then I think we do often think in terms of of lofty images that somehow belong to somebody else, or they are projected into some far future time. What is important, of course, about this path is that it it truly is concerned with now, with this moment, with the quality of our presence in this moment. It is not concerned with future rewards or future attainments. But I think again and again in this practice we are encouraged to look at the quality of our presence in this moment, which means also really to reflect, I think, on what wisdom and what compassion actually mean for us, what they mean for us in this moment. When we think only in terms of images, you know, and think in terms of, you know, very wise people, you know, Buddha, Jesus, Zen masters, often we think then of wisdom only in terms of, you know, people who've made a big impression on us, authority. Our compassion we think of as people who make very who live very noble lives, make very grand gestures. In the Buddhist tradition, of course, the the actualization of compassion is usually expressed in terms of the Bodhisattva ideal. The, the path of the Bodhisattva. 
we also really need to be very careful that in our admiration for, you know, great masters and great teachers, that we don't actually forget about ourselves. We don't actually forget our own sense of possibilities. The path of the Bodhisattva, it is a major tradition. It is a tradition in which many people find themselves not only in the past but in the present, making a certain inner commitment to. Not just old Buddhists, you know, or you know, people only in the Mahayana tradition. The Bodhisattva path is actually a very living tradition. The path of the Bodhisattva or a Bodhisattva is a person who within their own hearts actually commits themselves, has a de- dedication to the liberation and the freedom of all beings, actually makes a commitment within their own hearts to bringing about the end of suffering. The consciousness which is infused with this aspiration is called the mind of enlightenment or bodhicitta. And certainly in the path or the tradition of the bodhisattva, no distinction whatsoever is made ever between wisdom and compassion. Because to be truly awake is to be sensitive, is to have an open heart, is to be free from clinging and from division. To be open, to live with sensitivity, with an open heart is to be compassionate and to be compassionate is to be awake there is no distinction possible to make now it is probably fairly difficult at times for us to think of ourselves in the light of bodhisattva because our minds can probably produce with very little difficulty a whole catalogue of reasons why we are not bodhisattvas, why it is not possible for us to travel this path. We might think to ourselves, well, actually, you know, you know, even, you know, especially the more retreats I do, the more I discover how many problems I have myself. And, you know, obviously I have to solve all of these and, uh, you know, come to some clarity and insight myself before I can possibly think of anybody else. We might also think of this idea of liberating all sentient beings as frankly being really rather impossible. We might think, well, you know, I've encountered so much greed or so much selfishness in myself that I can never be someone like Mother Teresa or like the Dalai Lama. And that really I have to leave compassion to the expert. Now in the realm of logic, of course, these are totally valid objections. But the path of the Bodhisattva has never actually been concerned with logic at all. Logic has nothing to do with developing compassion. We will, of course, never be Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama. They are who they are. We are who we are. We can only be ourselves. We can only listen to our own heart. We can only grow in our own awareness, our own capacity to serve and to give. 
But part of this practice is trust, a very essential part. Trusting in our own possibilities. Trusting in our own possibilities for wisdom and for compassion in every moment. These qualities are really not the territory of only saintly or only special people. We hold, all of us, the seeds for those qualities within our own heart. Practice is a way simply of nurturing those seeds, of bringing them to fruition by learning to listen inwardly, by exploring, by extending our horizons, by trusting in our own possibilities. The path of the Bodhisattva is actually the path of every single human being who has the capacity for love, the capacity for forgiveness. It's the territory of every single human being who actually yearns, longs for the end of pain, longs for the end of conflict, suffering in all its forms that shadows our world. The path of the Bodhisattva is actually the territory of every human being who genuinely cares for the happiness and for the well-being of others, of themselves. We don't actually need any big credential to travel the path of the Bodhisattva. The path of compassion, in a very real way, is a path of celebration. It's not a path of depression, thinking there is so much suffering, how will it ever end? In many ways, the path of compassion truly is a path of celebration. It's a path of celebrating, in many ways, the possibilities that do lie within each of us to be awake, to care, to forgive, to love. It's a path of celebrating through making visible our own capacities for letting go and for generosity, for service, amidst the challenges of our own life and amidst the challenges of our world. There is so easily a tendency in the spiritual life, in ourselves, <clears throat> to really focus always on the unwholesome, on the imperfections, on the weaknesses, on the failures. You know, no one ever comes to interviews and says, you know, there's a problem with my generosity, you know, there's a problem with my meta, you know. So easily the whole sense of I tends to contract around that which we label as being negative or imperfect or unwholesome within ourselves. The things that we see that we believe deny to us liberation, deny to us freedom that we have to work on. Sometimes it seems almost bottomless depth to the personal imperfections we find. And sometimes in that way of seeing, which is of course totally imbalanced, we come to believe that really this path that we're traveling is all about making a concentrated effort to transcend, to overcome, or to renounce these endless imperfections. 
And it may even seem somewhat sacrilegious to even think of celebration amidst this misery, or amidst the misery of our world. Often it seems more appropriate to be engaging in some kind of self-punishment or self-denial. When we have that kind of imbalance in which we have contracted around that which we have labeled as being imperfect or unwholesome, what happens is that compassion and that wisdom are then endlessly postponed. We see them as coming later, after I've done this work I need to do, after I've worked things out. What balance actually offers us, of course, is the opportunity to see that even that which we label as being imperfect or unwholesome, what greater opportunity is there for the development of wisdom or compassion apart from that? There is only, of course, one place that wisdom and that compassion can ever be realized, and that is in the moment that we are experiencing and in our response to it. How many opportunities do we have in a single day for truly nurturing those seeds of wisdom and those seeds of compassion? They are countless. The opportunities lie within our, our judgments. The opportunities lie within the images we create based on judgments. The opportunities for compassion and wisdom lie within those moments of withdraw- <coughs> withdrawal from ourselves or from another person based upon images. The opportunities for wisdom and compassion lie in our own relationship to the fears and the doubts and anger that arise within ourselves. The opportunities for wisdom and compassion lie within our relationship to the person beside us who distracts us, who annoys us in some way. The path of the Bodhisattva, the path of the Bodhisattva, is to open to all things with awareness, with an open heart, knowing that the person that we see before us is truly no different than ourselves, simply in a different form, in different circumstances. That kind of open-heartedness means that we can really let go of all this struggle about finding the right words and the right actions and the right expressions, how to extend compassion. To truly live with an open heart is to know that all right words, right actions are born of that. Sometimes the Bodhisattva path is called the great vehicle. It is called the great vehicle because it does ask actually a great deal of us. It is a very demanding path. It is not a path for the lukewarm or for the times or moments when we feel spiritually indifferent. The path of the Bodhisattva actually does ask of us endless, unconditional, giving, allowing, 
and generosity. It actually does ask of us endless forgiveness, letting go, and love. In the face, every moment of anger, every moment of rejection, every moment of negation, every moment of separation, it asks of us to call upon these possibilities and qualities within ourselves. Sometimes it seems too hard to do that. Sometimes we think, well, this is just too demanding, it is too difficult, or it's not possible for me. But it is much harder not to do it. And I think that is really the kind of lesson that we need to appreciate in this path. It is much harder not to live with generosity and forgiveness and compassion. Generosity and letting go and love, they bring only joy and warmth and freedom. The absence of those qualities will truly bring only pain, anger, denial and holding. Self-centeredness, they do bring conflict and limitation. These are the primary lessons of wisdom. They're the basic lessons of wisdom. The lessons we learn over and over again in our lives. The lessons that we truly need to learn to listen to. Because it is out of learning these lessons, actually, that compassion does begin to emerge. Nurturing compassion is a conscious path. It is a path of reflection, of inquiry, and of calmness. And I would say that there are, amongst probably many others, four essential ingredients that are really intrinsic to developing compassion. One of those ingredients is the quality or capacity of imagination. One of those ingredients is the quality of equanimity. Another of the ingredients is the quality of courage. And the last, the ingredients in developing compassion is the quality of wisdom. Of course, we can never know entirely or deeply what another person's experience actually feels like to them. We cannot actually know entirely and deeply what another person's grief or sorrow or suffering actually feels like within them. Neither can anyone else, no matter how loving or how much empathy they have, actually feel with our feelings or see through our eyes what we actually experience. That does not mean that there is, of course, an uncrossable divide between ourselves and others. It doesn't mean that we are isolated and locked within our own individual experience and that this can never be touched by the heart of another. Imagination is an interesting quality. Sometimes it may seem very contrary to meditation when we say, let go of thought, let go of the mind, let go of religion. But imagination is a curious quality in the development of compassion. It is a quality that actually has a great capacity to bridge gaps between, us, between self and other. Now, imagination, of course, what I'm talking about is not the imagination of fantasy or you know, conjuring up images or artificial responses 
Imagination is a certain creative faculty of our mind. It's a flexibility that can be born of an open heart that actually enables us to receive the pain of another, to receive our own pain without judgment, without preconceptions, without prejudice. It is a creative faculty of our mind that actually enables us to extend the horizon of our unconsciousness, to go beyond the limits of our own individual experience and memory. I'd like to read you a, a piece from Stephen Levine's book, The Story of a Woman in a Hospice. A woman came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All that she didn't want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so many so often that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks her isolation and pain increased until one night. She came to a point when she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. At 4 a.m. feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear how her intense holding had created such intense pain. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a deep sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go, and died into her life, into the moment letting go into the pain in her spine and legs. She began to sense, quite beyond reason, that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breast slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of an Eskimo woman lying on her side, dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, her hips, and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was each dying beside the other. She experienced the 10,000 sufferings simultaneously. She said, the pain was beyond my bearing. I couldn't stand it any longer and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it just wasn't my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all life. It was life itself. As the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain at the hospital. She constantly asked after them. And the room became a place where the nurses would come on their break because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, 
responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sitting on her bed, the grandchildren she'd never met, the heart she'd rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, her room became a place of healing, of finished business, of universal care. Hazel's was one of the most remarkable healings we have ever seen. What pain can offer to us is a sense of our common humanity. Pain can be overwhelming. Pain can lead to despair. Pain can also dissolve separation. Pain is humbling. That is one of the basic actualities of pain. Whether it's in our hearts, whether it's in our minds, whether it's our lives, pain is humbling. It erases so completely our sense of control, our sense of personal power. I can't change this. I can't get rid of this, no matter how much I want. This is something I need to be with. This is something I need to understand. In many ways, pain offers us the most vital opportunity for letting go, for surrendering, for understanding the emptiness of the barriers that would somehow describe pain as being my pain or your pain. Fear is fear. Loss is loss. Aging is aging. Sorrow is sorrow. Just as happiness is happiness. Just as joy is joy. These qualities in our lives part of our human existence and our human experience, they are not interested in the labels of mine or not mine. They are qualities that lie within each life. There is not one single thing that you can experience that has not been experienced before. There is not one possibility that lies within you that cannot be nurtured, that cannot grow. In res what response can we have in the face of this common humanity but compassion? Out of this empathy, out of this understanding, there arises a quality of passion. And this is part of compassion. Passion is integral to compassion. Passion is something that actually inspires us. It moves us to serve, to forgive, to let go, to support. Passion energizes our capacity to feel, to step beyond the boundaries of our own particular individuality, our own particular experience. The second ingredient developing compassion the quality of equanimity. Now sometimes people mistakenly interpret equanimity as somehow being a little removed, a bit detached, somehow unmoved. Equanimity is described by one Tibetan teacher in the finest way as being equally near to all things. Not distant, not apart, but being equally near all things. It is necessary in the development of compassion. 
The greatest hindrances to the development of compassion are aversion and attachment. We see when there's aversion, we close our hearts. We close our hearts to another person, we close our hearts to ourselves, we turn away from something or from someone or from ourselves because we feel offended or we feel challenged or we feel threatened in some way. How can we open our hearts when we are in the process of turning away? This is where we need equanimity to be balanced, to stay open, to stay equally near. Attachment means also that we close our hearts just in a different way. We close our hearts through focusing with such exclusivity upon what we want, what we grasp hold of, what we desire and then trying to defend it or protect it. But equally, we close our hearts. Wisdom, letting go, equanimity, somehow allows us to appreciate the subjectivity of our own aversion, our own attachment. Equanimity really allows us to see the fruitlessness, the waste of our energy, in living in a way in which we divide the world into our enemies or our allies, our friends or our strangers. These dualities make compassion very difficult. There's immense freedom, immense, letting, immense openness that comes to letting go of these labels, letting go of the subjectivity of our reactions. It's not difficult for us to reflect upon this. What difference would it make in any relationship we have had this day to a thought, to another person, to a feeling, to a sight, or to a sound, to think of just one today where we have turned away from? What difference would it have made in that moment, in that relationship? To be able to let go of our labels, let go of our aversion, to sustain the connection which is the basis of compassion. What, of course, equanimity does is allows us to appreciate interconnectedness. When we are able to somehow see through aversion and attachment, then we do appreciate very deeply the nature of our interconnectedness, the universal universality of the capacity to feel both sorrow and joy and to learn how to live in the spirit of that, how to truly honor that in our own hearts and our own lives, which contributes to our own well-being, to the well-being of others. The third factor is our quality, quality of courage. Compassion and openness and love, these are not easy paths in our life. In some ways, it is so much easier, it seems, to live a life of protectiveness, to live a life of being closed down, to live a life of shutting things out. It is not easy for us in any way to live with compassion, to live with openness, to live with love. Think of all that we need then to let go of. Isn't it? And that sometimes seems to be like a major uh, difficulty for us. 
But I think also we come to appreciate the difficulty of holding on. But it seems extraordinarily challenging. It is hard hard to open to pain, whether it's ours or whether it's someone else's. It really challenges again so many of our ideas of control. Somehow it seems easier at times to avoid, it feels safer. Because what do we hear in pain? What do we hear in another person's pain? We hear the echoes of our own pain. What do we hear in another person's fear? We hear the echoes of our own fear. What do we hear in another person's doubt? At times we hear the echoes of our own doubt. This is hard for us to acknowledge. This is hard to acknowledge these possibilities within ourselves. Because at times we feel, what if I can't accommodate pain? my own or someone else's? What if I really can't embrace it? What if I'm overwhelmed? What if I'm somehow swept away? Well, sometimes we are. Basic actuality. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we cannot accommodate. Sometimes we cannot stay with. This is part of learning humility. But to know that every moment of not accommodating To be able to acknowledge that with honesty offers us the opportunity of beginning again. This is not a failure. This is not measure of some kind of incompleteness. This offers us the opportunity to begin again. It takes immense patience and perseverance to stay with pain no matter where it is located. Especially to stay with pain without any fantasies or demands about fixing it. This is compassion, just to be present. To know that perhaps healing can come to that. But to have no fantasies of wonderful solutions. Because this is again, this is just a manifestation of separation. That someone else's pain should end in a conclusion that's acceptable to me. Or that my pain should end in a conclusion that it's acceptable to me. Just to stay with, without any demand, requires enormous courage, enormous, well, immense kind of willingness to be present. Wisdom is integral to all of these qualities. Wisdom allows us to see beyond the superficial to see beyond our judgments about right and wrong, to see beyond our demands that lead us to reject a person or ourselves as we crave something else. Wisdom comes through experience. Wisdom comes through the willingness to learn. Wisdom comes through the capacity to forgive. Wisdom is about open. There are so many stories in the spiritual life that tell us again and again simply to set aside our conditions for being present. To set aside our conditions. To set aside those conditions that I will be present if it's comfortable or if it's acceptable or if it's pleasant or I will be present if, uh, if there's a reward that comes from us. All of this tradition asks of us to set aside our conditions for being present. There is nothing that is exempt from awareness. There is nothing from which we do not learn, through which we do not grow. 
every condition reinforces separation. Meditation is about learning unconditional openness. That is what this practice is about. No rights and wrongs, no worthy, no unworthy, no acceptable, no unacceptable. To see no duality. Learning how to be present in every single moment without conditions. This is the basis of wisdom. It is the basis of compassion. The basis of compassion, which sees no separations whatsoever. Last thing I'd like to share with you. Any bodhisattva who undertakes the practice of meditation should cherish one thought only. In understanding perfect wisdom, our liberate all sentient beings in every realm of the universe and support their passing into the eternal peace of nirvana. And yet when vast, uncountable, unthinkable myriads of beings have been liberated, truly no one has been liberated. Why? Because no bodhisattva who is a true bodhisattva entertains such concepts as self or others. Thus there are no sentient beings to be liberated and no self to attain perfect wisdom. The setting aside of conditions begins in a very immediate way. It begins in a very immediate way in all of our thoughts about self and other. As long as we are inhabiting those separate abodes, compassion is diluted. <coughs> compassion is in relationship to this moment without inner or outer, not about what is worthy or unworthy, but about opening our hearts just to what is with us, what is brought to us, what we receive and what we give. May all beings live with equanimity. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings of compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.